You're listening to the Paleo NP podcast, episode number two. Welcome to the Paleo NP podcast. I'm Martha, a family nurse practitioner and creator of MarthaFlorence.com. I live in Anchorage, Alaska with my boyfriend and fur children. I'm here to share my take on integrative health, nutrition, and fitness, answer your questions, and talk with health and wellness experts. You can submit your questions at MarthaFlorence.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Remember that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey everyone, I'm so happy to be back here for episode number two of the Paleo MP podcast. Today's episode is all about Paleo 101, but I also wanted to quickly mention that next week I've got a guest to bring on the show, so I'm really excited about that. Um, So be sure to catch that um, episode next week on Thursday. So to jump into this week's topic, um, Paleo 101, I realized the other day that a lot of people Um, have probably heard of the paleo diet, but they might not actually understand what it means. It gets a lot of attention in the media as an all-meat diet or something like that. So I thought that I would talk about that today since there's, since so much of what I do and how I work with patients and clients stems from some of the principles related to the paleo diet and the way of thinking that goes along with it. I also wanted to do this episode to help out those of you who may follow a paleo diet, but who maybe don't understand why some people choose to include certain foods or food groups that aren't technically paleo, um, or even those of you who may be struggling um, with implementing a paleo diet. Um, To clarify, one of the uh, very important things right from the start, when I say diet, I don't mean a short-term change in eating that gets you to reach a certain goal. If I do use the word in that context, I'll definitely clarify it. Um, But when I say diet, I mean the way that you eat every single day. I mean your diet, as in the food that you eat to fuel yourself, because that's what food really is. And I think that's something that we really easily forget. Food is fuel, and your diet is your fuel. I'm also hoping that this will help those of you who struggle with family or friends who don't really understand why you choose to eat or not eat certain foods, and maybe aren't the most understanding about it. Um, I'm hoping that maybe you can share this episode with them, and it might help them understand a little bit more where you're coming from and why you're eating a certain way. And this doesn't even necessarily apply directly to if you're following a paleo diet, but if you choose to avoid any of the things that I'm going to talk about today, um, this might help clarify that for some of them. Also, um, my other hope is that for those of you who are looking to make changes for the new year, uh, this might spark some for lack of a better word, sense as far as not doing something super extreme, although paleo does tend to feel pretty extreme to people, um, or anything short-term for a quick fix, because really there are no quick fixes. For those of you who have found success with paleo and want to help your friends, you can share this episode with them as well as uh, share with them some of the successes that you've had. I think it was Rob Wolf that said, try it for 30 days and see if it works. Because if it does, then maybe after just 30 days, your life will be better. But if it doesn't, you really haven't lost anything or harmed anything because 30 days isn't really all that big of a deal or that much time. But if it does work, you'll see a huge improvement after just 30 days, which is pretty impressive. I think I probably need to first start with my paleo journey, which isn't a huge story of transformation like it is for a lot of people, but it's important and valuable nonetheless. I first found paleo after I read the book Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver, and that was when I first realized that food quality was important. 
After that, I started doing a whole bunch of research about how the food you eat and the quality of the food you eat can actually affect your health. And I stumbled on this thing called the paleo diet. That was in 2009, so it was definitely not as popular or well-known as it is today. And there definitely wasn't as much information available. I started to transition myself off grains and gluten and dairy. And while I didn't really notice anything dramatic happen when I stopped eating those things, I did notice how terrible I felt when I did go back to eating those things. And I always thought that I had a dairy sensitivity, which I do to a certain extent. Um, but after going paleo, I realized that the bigger culprit for my occasional stomach, stomach aches was actually soy. Also, in the spirit of full disclosure, I have learned how much of certain non-paleo foods I can tolerate. Because I'm not 100% paleo all the time, although I really try to do the best I can, I know that if I don't eat gluten for several months, I can have one or two things with gluten in them over the course of a few days and not feel terrible. The same thing goes for dairy. I think this lesson has been one of the most important and valuable lessons because it allows me not to get stressed out over my food choices. If I'm somewhere that I can't find a gluten-free option, and whether or not you believe it, those places do still exist, um, even if all you're looking for is a piece of meat or some vegetables, this actually happened to me uh, when I was traveling this past summer and was in Connecticut. We were eating out and there was literally nothing but sandwich shops and pizza, pizza places all around. And after eating two or three salads in a row for meals, it just kind of becomes not such an appealing option. But I now know that if I were to eat a slice of pizza, I wouldn't feel awful. I might not feel as good as I did if I didn't eat the pizza, but sometimes you just need to weigh the risks and benefits. Anyway, all that is to say that for me, it's been a huge experiment in how good I can feel, which is pretty darn good. And that's always illustrated for me when I start letting too many treats and exceptions slip back in. It's something that happens to everyone, so don't worry about it. Um, and this really helps me clean things up again and get back into eating what makes me feel good because I know how good I can feel when I don't let those things into my diet. The other piece of this for me, which may not be quite as relatable for a lot of folks out there, is athletic performance. Now, I'm not a great athlete um, by any means, but I do enjoy my half marathons, 50Ks, ultra, or my 50K ultra runs, and triathlons, even though the quote-unquote paleo thing to do is to say no to endurance sports. I'm not a CrossFitter, although I do strength train, and I actually believe that this way of eating has helped me continue to do these sports without any injuries. I'm better fueled, which means that I can go longer between meals and need less fuel during races uh, than my non-paleo friends. The whole paleo endurance athlete thing is not super common, at least not um, amongst those who are considered paleo authority figures, if that's something that really exists. Um, because part of the paleo lifestyle is moving like our paleo ancestors did, and they were definitely not running marathons. They were moving slowly for long periods of time, but not, not necessarily running. Um, they lifted heavy things, and they did other functional movements that were a part of hunting and gathering. So that's kind of where I differ from folks a bit, um, but I'd be a complete hypocrite if I said that you should or shouldn't do certain things because they do or don't fit into a paleo framework, because I don't fit into a paleo framework, and I'm okay with that. But anyway... Paleo endurance athletes kind of go against the grain in the paleo world, so if you want to talk more about that, you can email me or submit a podcast question, because I could go on about that for hours. Um, but let's get into some of the good stuff here. And before I dive in, I want to say that your feedback is really important to me here, because I've been paleo for a long time, pretty much since 2009, and sometimes I forget what is or isn't important or challenging during those first few months of transition. So if something isn't clear 
or I just leave you with more questions, please email me or reach out on Instagram. Um, I'll put links to all the ways you can get in touch with me um, in the show notes so that I can clarify. So what is a paleo diet? It is a whole foods diet where we only consume the most nutrient dense foods as well as foods that are linked to positive health effects such as anti-inflammatory, providing the body with the macro and micronutrients it needs, eating foods that are healing, and foods that protect gut integrity. And gut health is actually one of the most important parts of a paleo diet. We should be eating foods that will heal the gut and reduce inflammation in our bodies. Inflammation, believe it or not, is tied to almost every single health issue you can think of. So when you eat a paleo diet, not only do you heal your gut, you reduce the inflammation in your body, and you can see um, improvements in every health condition that exists. Inflammation is the root cause of cardiovascular disease. It's involved in diabetes. It plays a role in cancer, asthma, allergies, high blood pressure. So almost any disease can be linked to inflammation in your body, and pretty much any disease can be improved by following a paleo diet because it tackles the very basic physiology that is behind so many of these health conditions. Um, especially those that are considered to be diseases of modern civilization, meaning that 100 plus years ago, they didn't exist or they were not very common. Things that are related to high sugar consumption, high gluten content foods, high processed food consumption, eating on the go, lack of sleep, and our overall stressful lifestyles. So all of these things can be tied together and the paleo diet can actually benefit everything. It can be fantastic for losing weight if you have weight to lose. Um, if you don't have weight to lose, it can be fantastic for weight maintenance. Um, and even if you have to if you need to gain weight, um, it can help you do that. And I think that's something that's really important to understand here is that we are generally a fat phobic society. So the common knowledge seems to be that eating fat makes you fat. And people come to the paleo diet and use a low fat approach, which is certainly better than eating a standard American diet, but you can, you'll probably find that you're more satiated with a higher fat, lower carb approach. Um, but that's also something that you'll just kind of have to figure out for yourself as you dive into this. So when you remove the inflammatory foods from your diet, your body and your immune system are no longer busy making inflammation and it can go battle other things like a cold virus or a flu virus. So you might even find that you have a stronger immune system when you go paleo and you're able to go longer between getting um, whatever cold is going around. One of the leading causes of heart disease isn't actually cholesterol, it's inflammation. But modern medicine doesn't really understand how to address this. So a paleo whole foods diet definitely addresses this. And in this diet, we eat real foods that are anti-inflammatory and healing and provide all the nutrients that our body needs for optimal health. It's a diet that is known to heal and reverse a huge variety of health conditions. So I want to talk really quickly about what I guess I will just refer to as the rules of a paleo diet. But I want to preface that by saying that it is your body and you get to make your own rules. So while what I'm saying here refers to generally what um, the traditional paleo diet is or the definition of a paleo diet is, you get to make your own rules and decide what you're going to eat and why. And I am going to provide you with some information that will help you make those decisions if any of this just sounds unattainable to you or is not something that you think that you can handle. So let's talk about the rules. A paleo diet does not include any grains or pseudo grains. Um, and that's a rule that seems to intimidate pretty much everybody. Grains contain a variety of substances that are classified as anti-nutrients. 
Um, these are substances that mean that your body can't absorb the nutrition from grains because the nutrition, the nutrients, the minerals are bound up by these anti-nutrients and are not available for your body. They also contain a class of proteins called lectins, which gluten is the best known example of. Um, and these are known to irritate or kill the cells that line the gut, or they open up holes between the cells that line the gut and allow things that are inside of your gut to leak into your body. This is what's called a leaky gut, or in the medical field, we refer to it as increased intestinal permeability. And this is one of the root causes of disease. So when things leak out of your gut and into your body, because what is inside of your gut is technically outside of your body, and 80% of your immune system is actually in your gut, you end up with inflammation because there are things that are in your gut that should not be in your body. So when you open up holes by consuming foods such as grains, you cause inflammation. And in some people, that inflammation actually becomes an immune response, which can lead to things like autoimmune disease. I talk about this in much more detail in my ebook, The 30 Day Energy Reset, which I will link to in the show notes. Um, but you can also go to 30dayenergyreset.com to learn more. So that's the number 3330energyreset.com. One of the things that I noticed when I removed grains and gluten from my diet was that they actually didn't make me feel so great when I ate them. So I didn't notice any digestive upset before I removed them. That was because my body had become used to eating them and kind of adapted to that sick feeling. So I didn't notice how they made me feel until I removed them and then I put them back in. That's when I noticed things like low energy and digestive upset when I ate certain grains and other foods. Now I realize that this sounds super crazy and hokey to people who aren't drinking the paleo Kool-Aid, but there are probably thousands of people out there that are saying the same thing about this way of eating. I've seen people with something like a plugged up ear that's been plugged for years, causing them to not be able to hear very well, and that no doctor can really explain, and the only conventional treatment for would be to get a dose of steroids, which even then is really only a temporary fix, have complete reversal of whatever symptoms in a matter of days or weeks just by switching to a paleo diet. So almost everyone who switches to paleo or goes paleo has a similar story. If it's not a chronic health condition, it might just be that silly, annoying thing like eczema or joint pain or something that you just attribute to getting older that's annoying, but it's not something that greatly interferes with your daily life. And we tend to, to accept these things as normal or as a normal part of aging, but I'm here to tell you that they're not. Um, I see patients with this kind of stuff all the time. They're like, oh, well, I have low energy and maybe that's just a part of me getting older or I've suddenly developed this knee pain um, that's kind of annoying, but it's not interfering with anything, but it's just part of me getting older. So these are not normal, especially when doing something relatively simple like changing your diet can make them go away. I don't really love advertising the paleo diet as an evolutionary approach, and I don't like using the archaeological record as a sole rationale for the diet because it's not really the sole rationale, um, which is why I tend to refer it as eating real food instead of paleo. But I think people relate to it better and understand it more if you call it paleo, because more people have heard that, and what do you even mean by real food? But I think that the um, label of Real food causes less of an emotional reaction in people than hearing paleo, which they think of as an all-meat diet. But really, we're going back to a way of eating that predates agriculture, which is where the term paleo comes from. It's short for paleolithic. And while 
That's not a rationale that resonates with a lot of people. It is actually backed up by modern science regarding the way that certain substances that we find in our food affects people and animals. And I think that actually resonates with a lot of people. So some of the substances that are in some of the foods that we're talking about have scientific references to back them up that they are harmful to your health, such as gluten causing um, leaky gut. So when I say grains and pseudograins, I'm referring to things like wheat in all forms, um, which would also be teff, seminola, durum, oats, rice, corn, quinoa, amaranth, spelt, sorghum, rye, and barley. And rye and barley both also contain um, gluten. So if you're overwhelmed by this information, one of the things that you can do is to make this switch is to consider putting grains into three different categories. So those that contain gluten and those that do not, and those that do contain gluten are wheat, rye, and barley. And if you don't specifically get gluten-free oats, they can contain gluten as well. The oats themselves don't contain gluten, but they are often contaminated with gluten. And there are actually some schools of thought that think that um, even gluten-free oats are not actually gluten-free so that you should avoid them completely. But that's not something that I'm gonna get into here today. Um, and if you're looking for a good place to start, it just eliminate that entire group of gluten-containing grains. That's a really great place to start. Just avoid them completely for 30 days. Then there are things like rice, but the lectins in rice is what make it brown. And in terms of gut health, brown rice is harder to get, um, harder to digest and more damaging to the gut. So white rice, teff, sorghum, and buckwheat are in the category of you should try to avoid them, but if you do eat them, it's not going to cause the same type of damage that the gluten-containing grains would cause. And then the third category is for things like corn and quinoa. So the fresh corn that you might grow in your garden is, a com is completely different from the corn that's found in almost every packaged food in the grocery store. I mean, people with corn allergies probably have it the way worse than anybody with any other type of allergy because corn is literally in everything and it's extremely hard to identify because it has so many different names based on how it's being processed. So then things like corn and quinoa would be the third category. So if you feel like you're going to die from not having pasta during your first 30 or 60 or 90 days, you can have something like sprouted quinoa or quinoa pasta or even rice pasta or eat some fresh corn because for a lot of people, they are just afraid of giving up that carb source and it's a huge source of anxiety for them. And literally the last thing that I want anyone to do is have more anxiety over their diet. Stress plays a huge role in your health. And if you're stressing about the foods you're eating, you can eat all the healthiest foods in the world and that stress will undo any of the benefit you get from that. So I hope that that concept of how to eat um, or avoid certain grains is helpful. This is not what I do today because part of this process is that it's an evolution, but this is a really solid place to start when you're feeling overwhelmed or scared or whatever you may be feeling about changing your diet. There is absolutely no shame in breaking this transition down into little steps. Like first, you're gonna take out all the gluten in your life. And then once you understand what that means and how to do it, you can move on to the next step by removing the, all of the non-glutinous grains. Everyone needs to go at their own pace, but what I'm trying to do is help you understand what and why so that you can make those decisions about this for yourself. I would also recommend checking out a list of foods that contain gluten. Um, that might be a little sneaky. Things like soy sauce, Worcestershire sauce, barbecue sauce, salad dressings, uh, those can all contain gluten. So when you're taking the first step and removing gluten from your diet, it can really help to understand where it also might be hiding in less obvious places. 
I think that Diane Sanfilippo over at Balance Bites has a really good list of sneaky names for gluten and where it hides. So I'll be sure to link that into the show notes um, so you can look at that because it's really super helpful. So grains is really a big one, but let's move on. Um, I think it'll be a little easier to talk about these next few. So a paleo diet does not include any legumes, which includes any kind of beans, so kidney beans, black beans, lentils, split peas, peanuts, and soy, which are really big ones. Now, legumes where you eat the pods, such as green beans, sugar snap peas, and snow peas, those are okay to eat. So while we are really just talking about any sort of legume where you don't eat the pod, um, but soy and peanuts are really the most important to exclude. Legumes cause inflammation and also cause a leaky gut. They actually have compounds in them called saponins, which beyond causing a leaky gut can increase inflammation and an unhealthy or out of control immune response. So those saponins are called adjuvants, which are something that's also added to vaccines that make sure that your body has a strong immune response to the thing you're being immunized against. But part of your, um, as part of your diet, which you're actually being exposed to far more frequently, it's really not a helpful thing. So if you're coming from a vegetarian diet, this is going to sound really shocking because in my experience, most vegetarians eat a lot of beans, soy, and things like peanut butter as their protein sources. Um, but if you are mourning the loss of your peanut butter, you can try something like almond butter or sunflower seed butter because nuts and seeds are definitely paleo because also remember that peanuts are not nuts, they're legumes. And they can be used, uh, other nuts can be used pretty much anywhere you might have initially used uh, legumes. Hummus is another one that's really hard for people to give up because chickpeas equal legumes. Um, but there are also a ton of recipes for paleo versions of hummus that use different vegetables instead of the chickpeas. So between your nut butters and your veggie hummus, hopefully you can find a replacement for the loss of legumes in your diet. The other thing to realize while you mourn the loss of your vegetarian protein source is that they aren't as high in protein as you might have thought that they were. And they're really high in carbohydrates as well as being super irritating to the gut. So you might actually be surprised what happens when you remove them. And also beans get a lot of, um, get a reputation for causing a lot of gas. And that is actually a sign that you don't necessarily tolerate them well. So I had a patient one time who had, I think she had something like diverticulitis and she was trying to figure out what she could eat because um, there's some pretty specific recommendations around what you eat after you've been treated for that. And we we're talking about protein sources and fiber and she was like, what about beans? Can I eat beans? And I was like, sure, if that's, you know, if that's what you want to eat, you can eat beans. And she was like, but they give me a lot of gas and they make my stomach hurt. Is it okay to take gas X? And that was kind of when I realized that people are pretty out of touch with the way food makes them feel. And I, we had a long conversation about if just because you like the way something tastes, if it makes you feel terrible, covering up the symptom that you get from eating that thing isn't necessarily doing yourself any favors. So we were able to kind of help, I was able to help her understand that while beans may be something that she thought that she enjoyed, perhaps she should try not eating them for a while and see what happens. And she came back and was actually like, wow, I feel so much better now that I'm not eating beans anymore. So I think it's really important to just kind of be aware how, of how certain foods make you feel and know that if you get something like gas after you eat them, it's probably a sign that there's something else going on and maybe you should eliminate that food for a little while and see if you can heal your gut and maybe um, add those back in later. 
If we're gonna prioritize legumes as far as the most important to remove and which are least important, peanuts and soy are at the top of the list for most important to remove. Um, and they also have the biggest body of scientific literature backing up the fact that they are really not all that good for us. Other beans are not optimal um, and should not be a regular part of your diet, but if you go out for Mexican food and just want to enjoy them once in a while as a treat, they're not going to cause as much damage to your gut as soy and peanuts, and they don't have um, quite the same immune impact either. Just like the occasional bowl of white rice isn't going to be terrible for you, you could also have a serving of beans every once in a while with no huge negative impact on your health, just as long as you make sure that you're staying away from peanuts and soy. Also, according to the Weston A. Price Foundation, um, soaking and sprouting grains and legumes actually makes them easier to digest, and then they won't damage your gut as much because it removes a lot of the anti-nutrients. And I'll put a link to the Weston A. Price Foundation in the show notes so you can check that out. All right, moving on. A paleo diet does not include any dairy. This can be a little tricky because the parts of dairy that can be problematic for people's health are the sugars and the proteins. So most people who are eating a paleo diet do actually include dairy fat in their diets um, unless they have a specific intolerance to dairy. Dairy fat that could be included would be butter or ghee. Ghee is just clarified butter, um, heavy cream, and sour cream. Now, I generally recommend that when you are first starting out on your paleo journey um, and are doing your initial 30 days that you remove all dairy from your diet because dairy intolerance is actually pretty common and the proteins and sugars can be problematic in ways that are separate from an intolerance, which is why those are typically admitted, omitted from the paleo diet. But the fats can have some great fat-soluble vitamins that are hard to get elsewhere, like vitamin K2, which is found in grass-fed butter. But I still recommend that you try to do no dairy for 30 days and then add back in some of the dairy fat sources um, and see how you tolerate those. The best way to figure out if you have an intolerance to dairy is to actually, like I said, cut it out for 30 days and then add some back in and see if you have a reaction. And remember that this reaction is not just digestive symptoms. Some people get skin breakouts or increased and thicker mucus, so it's important to remember that there are different responses that can happen. But if you are free of all of these things for 30 days and only add back in one thing, then it will be pretty clear if you have a reaction and what that reaction is. Then you can go back and figure out how severe that reaction is and how important it is that you do or don't have that reaction. Um, and what I mean by that is if it's, you know, thicker or increased mucus and you just really want some ice cream and you decide that you're willing to deal with the thicker increased mucus for a couple of days after eating ice cream, eat the ice cream. But if you get like an eczema rash all over your arms, your elbows, your knees, super itchy, really uncomfortable from eating cheese, Maybe you don't want to eat dairy because it's really uncomfortable and hard to get rid of that reaction. So that's something that I tend to leave up as a decision that I would leave to you. Um, you get to make that choice. It's your body. When we talk about dairy intolerances, most people have heard of the protein lactose, which is what, the one that gets a lot of attention. But there's also casein, which can be problematic for a lot of people. And there's some evidence that casein can actually uh, cause behavioral problems in children and that removing it from kids that suffer from ADHD or, or who are on the autism spectrum often actually improves their behavior. So if that's something that you deal with, your, deal with in your life, this might be um, an important consideration when you're thinking about uh, whether or not to include dairy in your life. 
Also, for people who are overweight, the proteins in milk actually cause a blood sugar increase and then an insulin spike. And that's one of the things I'm going to talk about next is sugar. But one of the things that we do with the paleo diet is regulate our blood sugar much better, which is important because too much glucose in your blood is inflammatory and causes oxidative damage in your tissues. And too much insulin in your blood, which it needs to get rid of the extra glucose, also causes increased inflammation. Let's also briefly talk about calcium because that's one of the most common things I hear from my patients and my clients is if I'm not drinking milk or eating dairy, where am I going to get my calcium from? And the very important point here is that there are a lot of calcium rich foods and dairy is not the only one. The calcium that's in kale is actually more absorbable and usable by your body than the calcium that's in milk. Um, calcium needs to be absorbed in the proper ratios with magnesium and phosphorus in order to be able to build mo bone and those other minerals are not available in milk. You can find more of that in vegetables and meat and bone broth. And also bone health is actually has more to do with the stress from infl inflammation, which ends up leaching the calcium from your bones. So when you decrease inflammation, which you do naturally from um, starting a paleo diet, you don't actually need as much calcium. And it also has uh, much to do with the with weight-bearing exercise than it does with diet. So making sure that you're getting something like walking in every day is really important for your bone health. So for people who are concerned that you need to drink however many glasses of milk today to keep up, keep your bones in order, that's actually not true. And there are some great articles that I'll link to um, that can help you feel more comfortable with this idea. So the next point is sugar. When you adopt a paleo lifestyle, you are cutting out some of the biggest sources of sugar that are part of the standard American diet. Also, I want to point out that when fat specifically saturated fat, is cited as the source of cardiovascular disease. It's not actually fat. There's a very strong body of medical literature that shows that fat is not the problem. Too much sugar is actually the problem. So once you cut out wheat, you're cutting out one of the huge sources of sugar in your diet. But we also cut out refined sugars when we adopt paleo diet. So it's not just the sugar that's in bread and pasta because we cut out grains, but also we cut out refined sugars like white sugar, brown sugar. We do include unrefined sugars as special treats like date sugar, coconut sugar, maple syrup, or honey. And the reason why those are included as a special treat is because they still have the mineral content intact. Whereas um, when you just consume something like white sugar, you're basically just consuming a pro-inflammatory food that has absolutely no benefit to your body. So these unre unrefined sources are still included, but definitely not a part of your everyday diet. Um, I even recommend that people who are using, um, who are used to putting sugar in their coffee, get used to not having sugar in their coffee, which is a process before you come after me for telling you not to have sugar in your coffee. This is a process that you can do very slowly if you need to, like decrease it a little bit every couple of days and eventually you won't even notice that it's gone. I can attest to this fact, I have done it. I was a two tablespoons of sugar in my coffee girl for many, many years. And when I went paleo, I worked on cutting that down. And now I hardly ever put sugar in my coffee. I've also found that a lot of people don't miss the sugar as much when they add a really great fat source to their coffee, like coconut milk or heavy cream. So if you're used to drinking your coffee with skim milk and three spoonfuls of sugar or some sort of sweetened coffee creamer, slowly decrease the amount of sugar in your coffee. Once you add something like heavy cream or do something like a bulletproof coffee with coconut oil blended in, you probably won't even miss the sugar. We also do not replace sugar with fake sugar. So anything that is any kind of diet product is not included in the paleo diet. And that's because fake sugar can be even more damaging to your health than real sugars. 
Sugar alcohols are gut irritants, so anything like sorbitol or xylitol. Um, and also when your body tastes something sweet, and certain people are more susceptible to this than others, your body will actually release insulin in anticipation of having sugar in your system. And remember um, that I talked about this a couple minutes ago that um, excess insulin causes inflammation and it really messes things up if your body anticipates that there's going to be sugar and then there's no sugar for it to pull out of your blood. This can actually lead to increased food cravings. There's some research that shows that also drinking diet beverages that have aspartame in them can stimulate your appetite and people tend to overcompensate for the calories that they avoid from having the diet beverage by eating more at meals or snacks because the aspartame stimulated their appetite. So there are people that this is a huge problem for and some people don't really have an issue with it, but it's just something to keep in mind and be aware of. Also, people are really fond of using stevia as a sweetener because it's natural and it comes from a plant, but the long-term effects of stevia haven't been studied because it's actually fairly new. There is some evidence that shows that it may have a negative effect on your hormones. I think the study I'm thinking of, which I'll try and find and link to, showed that stevia had a powerful contraceptive effect in rats, which may or may not sound like a bad thing if you're trying not to get pregnant, but honestly, anything that interferes with your hormones isn't the, great op isn't the greatest option, especially if it's something that you're exposing yourself to every single day. The other thing that people are really fond of are low glycemic sugars like, in, like agave. The reason why these are low glycemic index is because they do not contain glucose, but they do contain fructose. And excess fructose can contribute to inflammation and cause increased cholesterol. And it's also another sugar source that can mess with your hunger signals and actually make you feel hungrier. The body has a much better ability to deal with glucose and fructose from whole food sources, such as fruit, than it does from any source of sweetener like agave. So you should try to have fruit as a treat instead of something else, or even um, a baked paleo good that was made with honey or maple syrup. But remember that these treats, with the exception of fruit, are not meant to be eaten every day and replacing sugar with fake sugar is not a healthy option. And also, there is absolutely no source of sugar that will allow you to taste something sweet but will not impact you negatively if you consume it regularly. This is also not to say that you can't still enjoy your favorite foods, you just have to shift the way you are thinking about them and maybe make them yourself. Um, there's tons of websites out there that have tons of recipe for paleo, recipes for paleo treats if you need a tasty treat that still fits into these guidelines. One of the things that is kind of an added side benefit of going paleo is that your taste buds actually adjust and you end up thinking that what you might have eaten as a treat before is just too sweet and it actually becomes not quite as enjoyable, so it makes it easier to avoid those foods. I've also found that with some store-bought treats, they now have kind of an unpleasant, almost like chemical-y taste to them. It's kind of hard to, to describe if you've never experienced it before, but food that isn't what I like to call real food just kind of stops tasting good. So I really wanna make sure that you aren't looking at a paleo diet um, as a place of deprivation because you don't need to feel deprived. You don't need to count calories and you don't need to do anything other than listen to your body and eat real food. And if you're eating real food, it doesn't take long before your taste buds adapt and that real food is so much more delicious than any of the chemical filled or processed foods that you may have been eating before. So the last part of paleo is one that's really often pretty difficult for people to grasp, and that is returning to animal fat as our source of fat and avoiding vegetable oils. Vegetable oils are things like corn oil, canola oil, safflower oil, soybean oil, um, and they've been used as additive food additives and have been used in fast food um, for frying things. 
The reason that we avoid these is because they're high in a type of polyunsaturated fat called omega-6s. And you may have seen a lot of products that advertise that they're high in omega-3 fats, which are good. And the reason why omega-3 fats are good and omega-6 fats are not so good is because omega-3 fats are anti-inflammatory and omega-6 fats tend to promote inflammation. We do need both kinds of fat in our diet because they are both considered to be something called essential fatty acids, but what we need them in is balance. So when we go paleo, we aim to have no more than a one to two ratio of omega-3s to omega-6 fats, which helps promote healing processes and helps to keep inflammation under control. Most vegetable oils are extremely high in omega-6 fats, and keeping this balance of no more than one to two is pretty easy once you take out all of the major sources of omega-6 fats in your diet. Now, conventional meat, which is meat that's not organic, pasture-raised, or grass-fed, depending on the type of meat, can also be pretty high in omega-6 fats, which is why the paleo diet focuses on high-quality sources of protein, but I always recommend to my patients that they do not let the idea that you need to eat only organic, grass-fed, pasture-raised, whatever meat in order to follow a paleo diet. You've got to do the best you can with what you've got. And if you can't prioritize um, those high-quality meats in your budget, eating conventionally raised meat is far, far better than eating processed junk. The same thing goes for vegetables. If you can't afford organic vegetables, that's okay. Eat the vegetables anyway. Another major source of omega-6 fats are grains, um, legumes, and vegetable oils. So nuts and seeds also have a lot of omega-6 fats in them, which is why we recommend that you don't go hog wild eating them um, when you eat a paleo diet, but they are completely okay to eat um, despite that higher ratio of omega-6 fats. Vegetable oils um, are also not stable in cooking. Their chemical structure is bent, which is what allows them to be liquid at room temperature. And the less stable an oil is, the easier it is for it to become oxidized and damaged, which can in turn promote damage and oxida oxidation um, in your cells. There are a few oils that are stable at room temperature and are okay to use in cooking, but generally at low heat, um, such as olive oil, macadamia nut oil, and avocado oil. All of these are what is called expeller pressed. So the foods that they come from are naturally oily, oily and these foods are just processed, um, just pressed to get the oil out versus the extensive processing that needs to happen in order to make vegetable oils. Oils like olive oil and avocado oil are also great for making salad dressings and other things that you don't need to heat that you don't need heat for, but they can also get damaged at high heat, so you need to be careful when you cook for cook with them. It's better to avoid cooking with them and cook with a source of animal fat, but if you do cook with them, just be sure to keep them at a lower temperature. As I talked about earlier, saturated fat tends to get a bad reputation as the cause of cardiovascular disease. Um, I'm going to link in the show notes to a blog a blog by a doctor named Peter Atia who has written a several part blog post series about the fact that there is actually no real link between dietary saturated fat and cardiovascular disease. And that saturated fat is actually really important for things like brain function. So it's likely that the increase in um, mental issues like depression and anxiety that's occurred in the last 30 years or so is actually related to the decreased amount of dietary saturated fat that we've been getting since the late 70s. Saturated fat is a very healthy fat to eat because it doesn't oxidize, like we talked before with um, the vegetable oils. Good sources of saturated fats are animal fats, especially grass-fed, pasture-raised animal fat because those have the best ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s, coconut oil, palm oil, palm shortening, and butter if you don't have any issues with dairy. 
So these are all fats that are great to include in your diet. And as I said before, fats are something that your body needs. They are an essential macronutrient. And it's important to know that there is a huge range of macronutrient ratios that you can eat that are healthy on a paleo diet. Macronutrients are protein, carbs, and fat. And on a paleo diet, um, fat intake can range anywhere from about 30% to 70% of total caloric intake. But one other thing that I want to touch on that's not specifically rated related to fats, but is related to macronutrients is how this ratio can shift over time. First of all, you do not need to count calories or follow macros on a paleo diet. If later on in this journey, you end up wanting to make some specific tweaks for whatever goals you have, that's totally fine. But starting out, just focus on eating real foods. However, when switching from a standard American diet to the paleo diet, you generally see a huge reduction in your carbohydrate intake, which a lot of critics of the paleo diet will say that it's a low carb diet, which it can be, but it's not intended to be that way. It also depends a little bit on your perspective because when you're coming from the standard American diet to a paleo diet, yeah, it's pretty low carb. But when you look at the actual grams of carbohydrates that you are consuming, which don't even worry about that, you are, that's not something you need to do when you're just starting. Um, But when you look at the actual grams of carbohydrates that you are consuming, it doesn't actually qualify as a low carb diet. I got a question on Facebook about a low low carb flu period at first when switching to paleo. So for those of you who don't know what a low-carb flu is, it just means that when you drastically drop your carbohydrate intake, you sometimes experience flu-like symptoms as your body adjusts. But here's the thing. When you first switch to a paleo diet, you absolutely do not need to experience that. And actually, what a lot of people might think is a low-carb flu at first is actually a sugar detox reaction. So if you're feeling really lethargic, getting headaches, or having joint or muscle aches when you first switch to paleo, Please, by all means, eat some more carbohydrates, but make sure that they are high quality paleo sources like fruit or starchy veggies like squash, potatoes, sweet potatoes. I'll link to a post from Diane over at Balanced Bites um, that talks about paleo and being accidentally low carb because I think that it's really important that you understand how and why that can happen and prevent it if you don't want or need to eat a low carb diet. Also, be careful about paleo perfectionism to steal another term from Diane over at Balanced Bites um, and try to just do your best. The goal is to find a nutrient dense diet that works for you. But if you need to eat quinoa pasta for dinner one night because you just can't handle another night of spaghetti squash pasta or your kid's not going to eat dinner if you try to feed them zucchini noodles, so long as you understand what the food is that you're eating and what the effect is on your body and everything about the meal is improved because you're making it at home and using better ingredients and the right cooking fats and not putting a ton of cheese that's more plastic than cheese on top of your pasta, then you are far better off than you were before. One thing that I hear all the time is that I would go paleo except I can't give up the cream in my coffee or I can't give up my morning toast or whatever. Well, then do everything else and don't give up the one thing that you think you can't give up because when you're finally ready to give up that one thing that you just can't let go of, you'll find a way. But it definitely won't happen until you're ready and I can guarantee that it'll be a whole lot easier after having made the other changes. But just don't even worry about it for right now. Do all the other things and then change the last few things when you're finally ready. The reason that I recommend this way of eating to almost every single one of my patients and clients is because it will help you have more energy, it will help you feel healthier, and it will help you enjoy your life more because you'll feel better. And if you feel deprived of whatever food after your initial 30 days, then add the food back in. There's no paleo police that are going to come and bust you because you ate a paleo diet plus white rice. 
I will um, link to a podcast by Cassie Joy from Fed and Fit about why you should choose white rice over brown rice because she does a really good job of explaining that. Um, But if you need to eat white rice or quinoa pasta to feel satisfied, happy, and healthy, then by all means, please do it. So I challenge you to try paleo for 30 days and see what happens. And if you don't feel better after 30 days or if something you've been dealing with doesn't improve, I want to know about it because pretty much I've never heard of that happening. I have had so many patients come to me and say, I can't believe how terrible I felt before I before I did this. Like, how did I even live that way? But again, it's not about being perfect on paleo forever. It's about doing a little reset and eating paleo the best you can for 30 days and then start experimenting with all of the foods that you might have missed and want to add back in. If you need more direction on how to do this, you can check out my ebook that I mentioned earlier, The 30-Day Energy Reset, um, and I'll link to it in the show notes. I go over exactly how to go about reintroducing foods after you have after you've eliminated them and to keep track of any reaction you might have. There's a complete food reintroduction schedule there to help you um, track all of that and figure out which foods make you feel good and which foods don't. I also feel really strongly about finding the balance with your diet that works for you. So finding the balance between eating the foods that you enjoy um, and that help you enjoy your life and eating the foods that make you healthier and give you energy and resolve your health issues. For every person, that exists, but it also changes over time. The longer you eat a paleo diet, the easier it gets to figure out what to eat and how to find time to cook, and it becomes something that's more natural rather than requiring a ton of effort. And when you first start, it does definitely require a fair amount of effort to figure out what you're going to eat and what you're not going to eat and how you're going to cook that. So it's okay to do that slowly, and it's okay to make mistakes along the way. Some people do better with a cold turkey approach, but others take months transitioning. And I encourage you to get a good understanding of what you're eating and how it affects your body and make the changes that are appropriate for you to improve your health, no matter how long that takes you, whether it's a couple of weeks, a couple of months, sometimes even a year. And as I said, I am still on this journey. Um, I am constantly tweaking what makes me feel good and what doesn't make me feel good, testing foods, adding foods back in. Um, And that's something that I do with my patients and something that I talk about in um, my ebook is how to figure out exactly what you should be eating and what makes you feel good because really that's what it's all about. Like I said, there's no paleo police that's going to come bust you for eating a paleo diet plus XYZ. You get to make that decision for yourself and eat what makes you feel good. So I know that was a ton of information and it might have actually left you with more questions than actual answers. So if you have questions for me, please submit them um, via the form on my blog, which I'll link to in the show notes, or come find me on Instagram or Facebook and ask all your questions because I really want to help people um, feel good about this. So that's all I've got for you this week. If you enjoyed this show, I'd love it if you'd hop on over to iTunes and leave me a review. See you next week. 